starting to feel my feet. And this backpack is also getting heavier and heavier, even though it has the same weight as when I left home. My shoulders are starting to hurt. I've walked for 12 kilometers now, and I'm already wondering, when can I go home? <laughs> Hi, welcome to another episode of The Walk. I'm Father Roderick. On a walk, it's chilly outside, but at least it's not raining. <laughs> Actually, it can't, because blue skies, sunshine. <laughs> I'm walking uh, towards the city of Amersfoort. This is the northern part. This is uh, mainly all the new city, the new neighborhoods that were built 10, 20 years ago. There's a bit of water here. It's kind of a leftover patch that they filled with water. <laughs> That's Dutch city building. There's always place for water. We always have to remind ourselves that we live because we, we conquered the water. <laughs> and I'm on uh, another training round, walking, walking, trying to uh, build up stamina after uh, weeks of not training at all. It's also a time uh, where I am struggling with my own lack of shape and uh, I already had to cancel my plans to run a half marathon in March. Something that I wanted to be ready for, but because of uh, me not being ready, just underestimated the amount of work, also did not take into account uh, that I would have a bad cold that would hamper me for weeks, so I could not train. And now time is running out. So I'm not going to stress about it. Instead, I'm just slowly building up, gradually building up the, the hours that I walk. And um, the, 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 the difference with last year when I trained was that I am now carrying the full weight of the backpack, about the same weight that I will carry in Spain. And for those of you that are new to the show... <laughs> Uh, I'm going to walk the Camino, which is uh, six weeks from Lourdes in France through the Pyrenees. And then I'm going to take the most traditional pilgrimage route that most pilgrims take. It's not the only one. There are many, many other uh, trajectories. But this is kind of the classic vanilla Camino that I'm going to walk the Camino uh, uh, was it English or French? Now I'm getting confused. Well, whatever. The one, the, the middle one. You see, I still have to do a lot of research. A lot of... Uh, I, I need to, uh, to prepare for real because it's getting closer and closer. Some kids are playing hockey there on this, uh, on this field. It's uh, artificial grass. There's also this huge playground, which is deserted because kids are in school. Um, and it is so cool. It's all these, these climbing things, things that you can climb on. And the entire thing, it looks like an enormous dragon. It's very, very well done. Now, I'm going to have a bit of fun myself because I need to get to the neighborhood that's on the other side of that water. And the only, there's no bridge, but there are stepping stones. <laughs> 
Well, this is, I think, done for kids. I don't know. I hope the water is not too deep. But it's the only place that I know in Amersfoort where you can cross um, a pretty sizable patch of water by, st by these concrete stepping stones. So let's see how that goes. Um, but these, the, the downside of these longer distances is uh, I'm already experiencing uh, many of the, the, the problems that the real pilgrims are facing once they start their pilgrimage to Santiago. Because it's, it's not something you do normally walk for five hours, six hours a day. So, all right, I'm now on these, on these circular stepping stones. Now, the water is really shallow. I can see it's very clear, the water. So I can see the, the plants. So there's actually a lot of old leaves on the, on the bottom of the water. And I'm stepping from one stone to another. This is not something you should do while being drunk. <laughs> All right. Um, and one of the, well, the most obvious um, physical problem is my feet are hurting. And this has to do with the socks. I'm wearing these um, woolen socks. Here we go again. This is a very, very long stretch. This is amazing. I wish you could see this. Look at at least... 15 meters uh, and the amount of stepping stones is also less I really got to keep my balance here because otherwise if I fall down and the water is much deeper here too wow this is crazy <laughs> if I draw if I fall in the water then my, I'm wearing this heavy backpack still filled with potatoes I'm carrying my dinner on my back you know what? I'm getting. Uh, I'm starting to regret that I've done this, because I'm also wearing these shoes, these walking shoes, and it's great for walking. It's for balancing. It's just not made for that. Oh, great! Now there's dirt on these stepping stones, which hopefully is not slippery. Oh my gosh! <laughs> All right now, I'm not even halfway. And there's much more dirt. There's that bird droppings or something. Ugh, it doesn't look too appetizing. Man, I can't see the bottom anymore, so I think it, this is probably very deep. I feel like Mario. <gasps> Holy cow! There's a mass, there's a huge fish! I saw, a, I saw the, 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 the back of a, of a white fish. It was huge, like as big as my arm. Wow. Remember these green pipes in Mario? Well, these are not green, but they look exactly like that. Kind of same dimensions. <laughs> and, it, and if I step on them, fortunately, it doesn't make the sound like... going to go down into some kind of underwater level. At least I'm not planning on doing that. Okay, how many more? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. About, about 20 to go. Here we go. Oh, well past the halfway point. I'm really intrigued by this. Is this, is this made? I mean, this is, looks like an art project, but kids can totally do this. It doesn't look very safe to me for kids. Perhaps I'm just way too careful. 
almost there. Still dry feet. <laughs> this could be uh, part of a Jesus training camp. Like learn to walk on water. <laughs> well, here we go. I'm on the. I, I survived. <laughs> That's crazy. Um, so the uh, woolen socks, and they cause a bit of friction because I haven't walked for a long time, and so I feel that everything is a bit raw under my feet, and that of course is the uh, is the preliminary stage to blisters, which is something very painful that many pilgrims struggle with. Unfortunately, I'm used to blisters, uh, having ran several marathons and uh, especially in the early years I would always have blisters like these big red patches um, sometimes in between the toes sometimes it was just the sole of the foot the the more vulnerable the weaker parts of the foot and then over time the more you run and walk the blisters just go away just have to be careful that they don't get infected and then the soles of your feet become tougher. It's like playing guitar, you know? <laughs> when you first try that, your first lesson is hurting. But then your, your, you know, your, your fingers start, the tip of your fingers start to develop this thick skin. And it's the same with feet. So what I hope is that by the time that I'm going to walk the Camino, um, I'll have walking feet. But I can feel that I have not trained much over the winter. So building up slowly if i go if i walk too much then i know i'm going, going to have lots of blisters which will also make walking less fun <laughs> also another thing is uh, boredom <laughs> there is a reason that i'm recording the walk it gives me something to do and i enjoy doing this but i had to walk this long stretch before i entered the city next to a busy road and uh, that was after having walked in the countryside where, you know, it's nice and you see sheep and birds and farms and stuff, horses. But there's nothing more boring than walking alongside a busy, traf busy road with traffic. And I know for a fact that there are going to be long stretches and long days in Spain where you will do just that, especially in the in the uh the desert part where it's all dry and boring and flat and there's nothing to see <laughs> and apparently that's also one of the toughest things to deal with for novice uh, uh pilgrims just these long stretches of nothing where nothing happens there's not much to see and you've been walking perhaps already for a couple of weeks and so there you have nothing to say anymore and it's quiet and silent it's how you deal with the boredom. I don't know. <laughs> I better get used to it. <laughs> and of course, I'm not going to like record 10 podcasts every single day just to kill the boredom. <laughs> I could retire if I would do that. I'm entering... Uh, this is a uh, shopping center. It's surrounded by tall apartment buildings, blue, painted blue, light blue, and slightly darker blue. And uh, 
it's just a, the usual shops. We've got a lot of uh, shop ch chains, uh, chain stores where like every neighborhood has the same stores. And the only thing that is different from time to time are the, the restaurants or snack bars or here a flower merchant. The rest is all like I have exactly the same stores where I live. <laughs> there you go. See the first tulips there. The tulip season is is approaching quickly. There's a tiny little dog who is freezing cold. He's just standing there. There's a little tiny dog. I think it must be one of those North North. Uh, South, South American dogs. And there is no fat on these dogs, nor is there any, any um, hair. And so, yeah, I can sympathize. Freezing. So, uh, boredom. Long, long hours. I mean, I've only been walking for, what is it now? And look at my watch. It's almost 13 kilometers. That's nothing. And I'm already bored. I already want to go home, and I'm not home yet. Um, in Spain, I'll be walking 25 kilometers every day. Uh, so that's another two hours, at least. So any, anyway, I already said anyway. Anyway, anyway. Uh, the, the question that comes up from time to time in this period of uh, preparation is... Why am I going to do this? <laughs> what's, the idea, what's the deal with this whole idea of walking for six weeks to Santiago? Why am I doing this? It's, and the, more it closer, the closer it gets, the more real it gets, and the more that question becomes pressing. Why? What's, what's, what's the purpose of this? What's your goal? And I'm not used to not having a specific reason for what I do. And, uh, and other people ask me too. It's like, why? Why do you do that? I mean, yeah, sure, lots of people do that, but that couldn't be. That can't be a reason. Why do you walk the Camino? And uh, and this morning I was thinking about that, asking myself the same questions. Well, why am I doing this? Am I crazy? What what is there to gain from this? Yeah, and it hit me. And I, I suddenly realized I know exactly why I'm walking this. And f f the reason that I'm doing this runs very, very deep. It has to do with the core of, of who I am and uh, about my life so far. And in order to explain that to you, I have to go back to the, um, the, the moment, the event that made me of all of a sudden think, I want to walk to Santiago. Now this was last year, not so long ago, in October, when I celebrated the 20th anniversary of my priestly ordination. That's two decades. And those two decades were preceded by another decade of formation. I entered the seminary at the age of 18 which means I'm now uh, 48, almost 49. Which means 30 years of my life have been dedicated to this life with, with God. 
Um, it's it's so I'm much longer involved in this adventure than I was than my than compared to my life before that, when I still wanted to become an astronaut <laughs> and a film director and all those other you know, cartoonists. <laughs> um, and it was at the anniversary, the 20th anniversary of my ordination that it hit me, I want to walk the Camino. And this was even before, I think, the whole uh, journey towards uh, simplicity and the decluttering and the living, living, <laughs> living more with less in a certain way. But I think the the realization at that 20th anniversary was I've been on this adventure for so long now and I've been very happy in that vocation I've been very busy <laughs> that life has not at all been what I expected it to be and I remember that when I when I first started to think about, about becoming a priest my immediate association was and this was confirmed by conversations that I had with other priests, with, with priests at the time, um, was, this is boring. <laughs> this is going to be a very boring life. This is not going to be at all the adventurous life that I dreamt of in my younger years. Um, this is going to be a life of service. It's not going to be about me. And this is a, a going to be a life stuck in one place, serving one community of faithful. And perhaps from time to time, the bishop will send me to another place, but that's it. No more traveling, no more adventures, not even much creativity. Because I felt that the priesthood was, and I think I was right about that. <laughs> you step into a very long ancient tradition where it's not so much about doing all sorts of new things, but it's, it's passing on and practicing what has been done for 2,000 years, and it's living the gospel. And so I had this idea uh, 30 years ago of a very uneventful life, and boy, was I wrong. <laughs> it has been the biggest adventure of my life. This has been unexpected at every turn there have no there have not been any boring moments <laughs> at all really at all there have been difficult moments tough times but th they were certainly not boring so this has been a, a life that has kept me very busy and then when I hit the 20th anniversary I all of a sudden I felt like wouldn't it be great to walk away from all of this, from everything that kept me busy, and spend time with God. It's almost as if, after having been married for 20 years, you, you look at each other and you say, wouldn't it be great now that the kids are out of the house and, you know, we, we are settled. Don't you think that it is time to go on a, on a second honeymoon? Just go out, let's go on a cruise or something like that. Spend a long time, just the two of us together. 
and, and forget about the work, forget about all the sorrows and the, the things that keep us so busy. Let's make time for ourselves. Let's, let's rekindle that, you know, that, that love that we've shared for, for 20 years. Let's, let's fuel the fire with a, with a long journey together. Just the two of us. And let's, let's walk away from everything else that usually prevents us from taking the time to be with each other and to have time for each other. And so that's... The, I realized that when I did this uh, long interview for a Protestant magazine with uh, a presenter, a TV uh, and radio uh, presenter of that particular broadcasting company. And uh, they... Uh, the 50th anniversary of their uh, magazine, their, their broadcast magazine, uh, was coming up. And in some countries, at least in my country, they, they, they have this tradition when people turn 50, you're called Abraham or Sarah. Biblical names, of course. <laughs> Very old people. <laughs> They're much older than 50 years. They will put even uh, on, the, on the morning that you turn 50, the family members or friends, they will put these uh, puppets in your front yard if you have one, dressed up as old people. And then it's like Happy Abraham's Day or Happy, happy Sarah Day. <laughs> and so for, they had uh, Kristen, their uh, 50th anniversary number or magazine, um, the Abraham magazine. And for that, they, they were one of their leading presenters um, was was supposed to do a, a big interview with um, uh, someone who is well known in in the Netherlands. And his first his initial uh, idea was to go and interview a soccer player, football player, we would say, because this guy is very much into sports. And he's got a lot of um, because of his work as a journalist. There's a lot of contact. Con- contacts in the world of sport and so he wanted to do he wanted to interview this famous soccer player and it, for many reasons that fell through it just wasn't wasn't possible and then the, the next uh, the next name that came up was uh, was my name it's like i've been in, in on his shows in the past and i'm i'm a i'm a fan of of him as a journalist, a very good journalist, um, and I really like the way in which he is truly, his, his Christian background shines through in the way he treats people and the questions that he asks, but it's not, it's not over the top, it's not pushy at all, it's, it's, a, it's a very, very good, you know, professional journalist who is at the same time a Christian uh, a, a believer, someone for who uh, God is important in his life. And so I have, I have great admiration for people that are totally working professionally, but at the same time don't hide their identity. And, um, and so, but we only talked, you know, during interviews and in a TV show or in a radio interview about, of course, topics and then <laughs> things that are in the news. And then you just say, goodbye and that's it he also happens to live in the same city as I live 
His family uh, lives, uh, actually, I think, in this part of the city. And so from time to time, I, I, we meet, or he sees me on my bike, or vice versa. So we greet each other, and he was like, I, I, I've never really, we've, we've talked before, but we've never really talked. So I want to do, I want to take some extra time to do this big interview with Father Roderick. And so um, the interview was scheduled um, in an interesting location. It's, a, it's an old church that even before the Second World War was no longer necessary. This was a small village. They'd built their own uh, church. It was also, uh, they built it because they, they couldn't worship um, as Catholics. And so they built this, basically this hideout. It's kind of like a barn. And then the restrictions got lifted and they built this church. Kind of low-budget church, but still very nice. But the city around it started to develop. And other churches were built. And so this, this church was no longer necessary. And so they turned it into a factory. <laughs> and it's still standing. Nowadays it's used as an experimental place for the arts and whatnot. So on the inside it looks like a factory. Except for the ceiling. That they create, created a floor inside the church. Where you can walk underneath the, 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 the ceiling of the church. And uh, that still has a lot of the, it's it's nicely lit and it, so it's kind of a weird mix between a factory and a church anyway that was just setting because they wanted to have pretty photos and everything so there was this long photo session first like more than an hour with makeup and photographer and a stylist and whatnot i'm not used to that at all so they, they sent me an email please take three wardrobes with you one formal their priestly clothes and then uh, one casual like jeans and a uh, like a loose shirt and then something more sportsman <laughs> i wrote back i only have one type of clothes i have my priestly outfit and if you want to see me casual i have to show up in my pajamas <laughs> that's my casual i was like okay never mind and th whereas the presenter he came with like three sets of clothing just like they had asked or stylist had required him and, uh, and so he said, yeah, I've got people at the broadcast organization who pick my clothes. And so I'm just like, they, they gave me this and I'll bring it along. <laughs> That's such a different world. And so even the makeup is like, wow, I hardly ever have makeup, except for TV shows sometimes when you have these HD cameras and lots of light. And so, so you sometimes have to kind of do a, a little bit of makeup. But then with this other guy, they were even like modeling the strands of hair so that it would look casual, that kind of stuff. <laughs> wow. It's, I think, I think that's still also the remnants of an era where, where broadcast organizations used to be big, big companies with, well, still a, a considerably, considerable budget. That magazine is still read by hundreds of thousands of people so obviously they have a budget for that I'm already in the kind of in the post uh, broadcast phase mentally I mean there I, I do like 90% of the things that I do are, are digital and and low budget and you kind of 
you, it becomes a lifestyle. The things that I do are everything that I do, even the television work, is like super low budget, trying to squeeze the best quality out of the most limited set of resources. That becomes a, a second nature almost. And then all of a sudden when you're back in that old kind of wealthy era where they can take like almost an entire day for one interview. It's like a four pages in a magazine with a photo shoot and holy moly. I'm just not used to that. <laughs> so it was fun. But anyway, the, what I liked about the invitation also was that they told me you can, you can, uh, we would encourage you to also ask questions to uh, that journalist about the same topics. Why not? Let, let it be a conversation. And that's genuinely something that interested me because I also know him from the work that he does. But I'm always curious about people's motivation. Uh, how does he see the future uh, uh, for, for Christian journalism? Um, does he have ambitions? Uh, what kind of programs would he want to make? Uh, how, how does he, you know, what role does his faith uh, play in his day-to-day -day work and also what kind of background does he have because of course Protestant is a big big container uh, notion there are so many different uh, brands almost <laughs> or, or denominations in the Netherlands so what is his background has that evolved etc etc uh, does he see his work as a vocation same questions that he asked me and um, as part of that interview he asked me um, about the origin of my vocation. Have you always wanted to be a priest? Uh, how did that come about? As a Protestant, he didn't really know that much about how people become priests. So, so how, how did that happen? And uh, in addition to that, questions about have you ever doubted that vocation? Were there moments of crisis? Uh, is the, you know, what about living as a celibate priest? Has that been an issue? Is that an issue? Uh, questions that I think a lot of people um, always wonder about when, when they see a priest. And so I, I was... It's funny, while uh, sharing... Hey! Tom, <laughs> what are you doing here? <laughs> going to, the... To, the, to, the, to get a haircut? Yes. What are they going to cut? It's too long already. You have, you have <laughs> more hair than me and it's not enough. Uh, you're going to the haircut also. That's true. That's true. We have to. All right. Enjoy. <laughs> that's Tom. That's my boss at the television station. And also one of my parishioners. And, uh, and he, apparently he takes a haircut here. He lives at the other side of the city. So that's interesting. <laughs> Um, so, uh, immediately, because of those questions, I, 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 had to, I was brought back to the, the days when I was 17. And so I told them that in high school, I, I was born in a very, you know, Catholic family, and my parents were both active in the local parish. But I never considered that to be something out of the ordinary. On the contrary, I thought it was just the most bland, normal thing in the world. And... I've always gone to church. I was a, an altar boy and I enjoyed that. And, uh, and it was fun. 
and I, I, I really felt that it, it mattered. I also remember this old priest, we, we had our local parish priest, who never really convinced me that much. I mean, he was kind. Um, but I always felt like the priesthood for him for a long time was a, a bit of a job for him. It was not something that he truly enjoyed. There was this older priest, and he was in his 80, 80s, and sometimes he would replace our, <clears throat> our parish priest. And he would have these homilies where there was fire and passion and, you know, <laughs> unbelievable. The thing was, nobody really understood what he said because he had false teeth, which were not really, you know, <laughs> fixed that well. And so he was very hard to understand through the microphone. But I was sitting, like, next to him during the homily as, a, as a, an altar boy. So I could totally understand what he was saying. And I remember I was riveted. That was the first time that I met someone for who the faith was an absolute reality, was something that permeated his entire being and that made him passionate. And, and there was an energy for someone who was 80 years old that I could only explain by the merit of faith that had to be the, the, the energy that came from his faith. And so I think that was very pivotal as a child to see someone who was consumed by God. That's how it felt. Like, I, I, for me, the, to me, he was a saint. Like, this is, this is what they mean. This is someone who lives and breathes God. Now, that doesn't mean at all that that gave me any ideas about the priesthood. Absolutely not. <laughs> it's... Um, that was just a, a, a prospect that never entered my mind. But it was, I think it was important in, my, in, in, in the building of my own faith. Um, I know so many people that left the church because they were so disappointed in the, in, in the, in the ground personnel, as I sometimes call it. Like the, the, the representatives of that faith. Because they just felt fake or or they I don't know they made missteps and, and disappointed people or they were just nasty people that everything <clears throat> but I had the luck as a child to already see a priest for who I, I had the greatest respect and I could tell that he was he, he was um, almost as if there was a strength in him and a power in him that wasn't his, couldn't be his because of his age. He, he was literally uh, uh, in, in, in the grip of God. Is that a, I'm trying to translate something in, in Dutch. But it's almost as if when he was preaching, God took over. And it, it made all of a sudden faith much more than just a tradition, just a habit. Like here I saw someone who... I could not imagine living without God. That's, that's pretty strong as a, as a witness. I always tell myself that as well. Like I'm a priest and there are kids who may, well, who are looking at me. So I have, to make, I have to make sure that when I pray, that I really pray, um, that uh, faith and, and liturgy never becomes a routine. I, I never wanted that to happen because I know how much it meant to me to see someone 
who lived his faith in the liturgy. Um, but anyway, no ideas at all that that would be something for me. Um, but then something really, really interesting happened in that uh, my faith was attacked in school, in high school. And um, the, 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 the biggest issue that a lot of my fellow schoolmates and also the teachers seem to have is why do you keep supporting this completely out-of-date organization with its rigid views on basically any hot-button topic and the church is only uh, uh, an institution that forbids people to fully um, uh, be themselves and, and exercise their own freedom and and it's it's archaic and it's restrictive and so why why be part of that church this is a catholic school uh, and i remember at 17 i'm i'm kind of a, against the current type of guy and i remember hearing all those arguments and debates and most of my like i, I was probably one of the few kids that went to church on sunday the rest of my class didn't. And I was like, there's no way in the world that this institution, this church, would still exist if it was just an archaic, old-fashioned, restrictive, punishing, dictatorship-led organization. Like, there's no appeal to that. So what, how is it possible... That, a, that, a, that the church has existed for 2,000 years if it has no attraction. So what's, what's, the, what's the secret of that? How come? And why are people like John Paul II, who was the Pope at the time, he was about to visit the Netherlands, and he, he was criticized so much and, and ridiculed in all the media as being this uh, senile old man. And I, I just could not believe that. I was like, That's, there's no way in the world. This is someone who has been chosen by hundreds of, of, of cardinals. Or I didn't know at the time. I didn't know much about my faith. But anyway, uh, and this is someone who studied, who, who thinks about these things, who has this like, global view. There is no way in the world that this man is just an old senile idiot. And I, I just, that is just, I, that's rubbish. Of course not. And so many other people in that church have lived exemplary exemplary lives and have studied theology and and have paid it much more thought than my classmates and my teachers so i remember as a 17 year old i was like this is i don't believe that it's it's it can't be as simple as that but i also realized i didn't know anything about my faith i didn't know anything about the church and that's when i started to read all the books that I could find. And the more I read, especially church history, the more I was blown away. I was so impressed. And all of a sudden, especially when I started to read um, uh, writings uh, by, by Pope John Paul II and also other... I, I remember I was part of a student group. I was only 17. Most of these... Members of the group were much older than I was. And we were studying the documents of the Second Vatican Council. 
Um, and not really stuff that, you know, normally you'd read as a teenager in high school, but I, I remember that all of a sudden everything started to make sense. As like, it's as if all the pieces that I had that had been handed over by, through the virtue of tradition and habit, started to be, I started to see the connections. And it was like everything holds together. There is such internal coherence that it's, it's just beautiful. I, I've, I felt like I'm like Indiana Jones who just discovered this treasure room that nobody told me was there. And the more I read, the more I started to presume that this is the truth. This is so coherent. This is so riveting. And most of all, this is so attractive, so beautiful, so rich, and, and gives so much direction in life. Like, I would be foolish not to pursue this. But it, this, this was the intellectual phase. And then added to that was the kind of the intellectual uh, consequence of this thinking. But if this is more than just tradition and culture, if God really exists, then I'd better pay him some attention in my life. <laughs> Which, you know, in my life was mostly relegated to Sunday morning and a prayer before and after eating. That was it. I didn't pray. Nobody taught me to do that. Um, I didn't know anything about my faith. We didn't have catechesis. We, we weren't, I mean, you have a little bit uh, when you do your first communion and then the, around confirmation. That was all kind of dumbed down and very horizontal at the time. So I didn't know, I didn't know anything about my faith, except for the bits and pieces that I probably picked up by being an altar boy. The more I read, the more I was like, oh my gosh, why did nobody tell me this? And if God is real, I want to speak with him. I need to be in contact with him. And I need to do with what generations faithful have done. Is I have to start praying. And I remember I had this corner in my room where I was assembling my... Um, uh, my airplanes, my I had these building kits. I loved doing that. So it was the quite creative corner. It was always f- covered in glue and paint and plastic pieces of of, of building uh, sets that I was assembling. And I put it all aside. And instead, on that table, I placed a holy picture. I don't even know what it was. It was probably an icon, uh, like a reproduction of a an icon of the Virgin Mary, and a... It could also have been the Trinity, I'm not sure. Ah, that's probably from a later date, because I didn't have access to any pictures. Um, something I found, and then a candle, and I started praying. And I didn't know how to pray at all. <laughs> I had no idea. And the, the first few weeks, I was consumed with doubt. I was like, oh, gosh, what if I'm just completely making this up, and it's all fake, and I'm, I'm sitting here on my knees, and it's all fake. It's all made up. <laughs> it's ridiculous. But it, I, I kept coming back somehow. Um, it was stronger than, than me. And uh, the most important prayer I think that I've ever said at that young age was, God, if you exist, please let me know. 
because I want to make sure I'm not wasting my time. So if you exist, let me know. It's kind of a daring <laughs> prayer. But I was like, what have I got to lose? If, I, if he doesn't exist, he's not going to be offended. And if he does exist, he'll probably understand my question. And of course, nothing happened. I didn't get any revelations or apparitions or anything. But what remained was his attraction to his fascination. I had, I, I'd had many hobbies and many of those like passions where all of a sudden I would want to know everything about the space shuttle and I'd turn my room into an, uh, an observatory and I'd, I'd, and then it would the other a month later it would be the army and, and I would collect anything about that I would have these these these, these nerd moments uh, but it would always come and go this didn't have that characteristic it's it stayed put and it only became stronger and my parents saw that and they uh, they they said well perhaps you should go to uh, to a retreat for a for young people and that's what I did and again I was like wow nobody told me all this stuff this is amazing and uh, I remember having a conversation with a Carmelite nun who was also accompanying the retreat and I asked her about confession I don't know why perhaps the priest mentioned it and like does that still exist and she's just like sure and I was like well I'd like to (laughs) I'm having no idea what it was and she's like well you can just go to the priest and he'll help you and so I I said my first confession during that weekend and I can truly say that that was uh, one of the strongest um, experiences of God that I've ever had. I was overwhelmed with joy and and felt carried by God. And uh, it's truly um, it 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 brought the my experience of faith from an intellectual level to the level of my heart. Um, and I felt like I have met God. This was the answer to my prayer. If you exist, let me know. And at that time, at that moment, I knew for sure he exists because he loved me. And I feel his love. And something that doesn't exist cannot love me. (laughs) And uh, so that was that. Still not a hint of a vocation. Just fascination, just feeling like, man, I want this for the rest of my life. I can never ever leave God alone anymore but and and I I I was of course intrigued by this and I was like okay so what's next this was towards the end of um, of secondary school so I had to make a decision about what to study I was asking myself these questions of what is going to be your future I had no idea but I knew one thing for sure my future is going to be with God that is out uh, this is above any any doubt. But what? What? Well, still couldn't figure it out. Um, and then uh, I was made aware of a pilgrimage, a youth pilgrimage to Lourdes in France. And uh, there was also a couple of there were a couple of buses, or I'm not sure. Perhaps we went by train. Anyway, it was a highly subsidized uh, uh, trip pilgrimage for young people and didn't cost much hey hi uh, parishioner 
Um, so I was like, yeah, sure, I'd like to, uh, I'd like to go. And that was another revelation. That was the first time in my life that I saw other young people that believed. And we had mass every day, which was like, wow. Yeah, I had mass every day as an altar boy. Um, so I was used to that. But then there were, were like 10 people in church. And here we had 10,000 young people in, the, in that massive underground church there. And I saw young priests. I'd never seen young priests. And they were, and young religious people, and they were all beaming and, and, and kind and smiling. And we had these conversations about faith. And it, like everyone that surrounded me was like, it was just obvious for them. Faith was, you were, I was no longer a panda bear. bear. I was no longer an almost extinct species, but I, I felt like this is, this is normal. Like all these other cool kids, and they were a lot less nerdy and geeky than I was at the time. All these great, you know, people of my age, for them, faith is important. It's part of their lives. And wow, never experienced something like that. And of course, it started to bubble up again. So I want this. I didn't know what, but I was like, I, this, is, this is what I want for the rest of my life. Nothing but this. And uh, I went to the grotto at night. I think it must have been one of the last days of the pilgrimage. And I sat down at this where I kneeled down, probably I knelt down on the, on the ground in front of the grotto. And I prayed, I prayed hard, and I couldn't find it. Couldn't figure out. I knew that God wanted something, and I did not know what it was. And so I, I made the, the the second prayer that changed everything in my life. I asked Mary. I remember formulating the prayer like this: um, "Holy Mary, <laughs> Mother of God, I cannot figure out what your son wants. I know he wants something. I don't know what. What is my future going to be?" You are the closest human being ever <laughs> on the planet to your, that is closer than anyone else to your son. Can you please ask him to tell me what he wants? Can you pray? Can you intercede? I probably didn't use all those words. But anyway, it's like, help me. <laughs> help me, Virgin Mary. You're my only hope. That was basically it. Which theologically, of course, is not exactly correct to say that. But that's how I felt. It's like, I don't get an answer, but Mary can, can help me. And I think I probably said something like, I'll just sit here. I'll just wait. I'm not going to leave before you get back to me. <laughs> and I have no idea how long I've been sitting there. Um, I just know that at one point, and it was dark, the only light were the all the thousands of candles in front of the grotto and there was almost no one left and I stood up and I knew for 100% certain that I had to become a priest that was it there was for me it was obvious this is it I, I need to become a priest I'd never thought of that but it was from that moment on it was obvious it was 100% certain 
And I can tell, I told also the journalist during that interview, since that day I have never doubted one second that that was my vocation. To which, of course, he answered, well, lucky you. So many other people have doubts and... and uh, isn't that a bit too easy? That seems to be. I said, "Well, you know what? I have had many doubts, but the the doubts were always about me. Why did you ask me? Because I am not the best person at all to become a priest. Why not pick someone who is much more suitable for the job? Who is much more holy and friendly and social? And that was also." What my parents told me, especially my mom's, like, yeah, why you? You are certainly not fit to be a priest. You don't have the qualities that are necessary for the priesthood. And I think she was right. She knew me very well. I was a very geeky, nerdy, um, not very social, introverted guy who loved to be alone in his room and 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 uh, reading and and drawing cartoons and, and whatnot, and comics. But I was not at all the pastoral, like, oh, gosh, I want to help people. And, oh, no. So the, the doubts that I've had and still have from time to time is, why did you pick such a broken instrument? And, I, of course, over time I've seen um, why he... I, I've found reasons why he probably picked me because I have certain talents um, that he has been able to use very well. But still, in, 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 in contrast with that, there's also so many defects, so many things that um, make me not suitable for the job. But to me, that has always been proof that this was a vocation. And this was not uh, an idea that I came up with. This because I did not want to become a priest. I'd never thought of it. Even after having received that certainty that that was to be my future, I still did not really like that prospect. And talking to all those priests, that for, asking them for counsel, did not at all um, make me more enthusiastic about it. Because the first the parish priest, my own parish priest, told me when I had a conversation and I asked what he thought about this idea, he said, don't do it. It's not a good life. It's, it's terrible. If I had to choose again, I would never become a priest again. <laughs> Talking about discouraging counsel. And yet, I knew for sure that was... But it was a vocation. I've just felt called. It's stronger than me. And the other dimension of this, and this had been going on for much longer than that, that moment of realization that I had to become a priest... I was just, I just felt carried in, in, by God, and I felt so much love, and, and it was, it was mutual. This truck lets me cross the road, very kind of him. Um, I, I, I had discovered God's love and God's mercy and that was filling everything. I was like, this is, this, is, this is making me so happy. And I was happy. And it's that love, and that's something that, because it's so personal, you often don't talk about that much. 
But I've, that's one of the reasons that I was so riveted by reading um, the writings of St. Therese of Lisieux, who became my very, very important saint in, in my own formation and my own uh, uh, journey. Because when I read what she wrote, I immediately recognized it. It was the same language. I felt exactly the same. And it's, it's this, this feeling of no matter how small you are, God loves you and he carries you and he, he sends you and he's with you. And it's like, wow, there's nothing better than that. And so for me, that was the first decision that I made was, was even before deciding, yes, I'm going to say yes to this, to this vocation, was I want to live my life with God and God alone. And that's enough. And so when people ask me about celibacy, I always tell them that that was the first vocation was I felt called attracted to a life with God and God alone and that <laughs> where God is my everything and then the priesthood was kind of like obviously that fitted that that first that initial calling of like I want to my life is entirely with God I want nothing else I want no one else and um it doesn't mean a solitary life. And I've explored the question of whether I was called to become a monk and whatever, a religious, uh, go, become a, a religious per person. None of that. It's, I feel very confident. My vocation is to be a normal, regular priest. And I am called to a life with God. Um, and at the same time, Every single day, I have these moments where I wonder, am I up to the job? Why? I, I, feel, I feel mostly grateful for the fact that God picks me despite my, my flaws, my character flaws, my infidelities to his love, where he wants to be my everything and I want him to be just like a part of the things that I do. But oftentimes I have a lot of other stuff going on in my life where I never ask myself the question, if I do that with God or not. And so the intensity of the love that God gives me is something that I always struggle with to, to return. But I know for sure that he is 100% there for me. And, and that is, for me, that's enough. And, and um, my brother and sister both have families. I love them dearly. Uh, they have kids. I love them dearly. I can totally see the the wonders of parenthood um and at the same time i can just be happy for that without ever feeling the 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 hurt of like oh i wish i had made another decision um no this i think god is too too strong for that or i don't know i've never never had that um feeling that i missed out on stuff at all I'm perfectly happy that God called me to this life. But it's, like I said, why, uh, the, the question, why do you walk the Camino? For me, once I told the story again, it's funny how that brings you back also to those early feelings of, gosh, isn't it amazing? It's when, when you, that God called me to this, this life and he is the love of my life. And wouldn't it be wonderful to take some time off and to make room for God 
and to to just like when I started to pray and I pushed aside literally all my hobbies and all the stuff to make room for this prayer corner for God. I feel that this this walk to to Santiago could be exactly that. Let's walk away from everything that is normally occupying my life that makes me so busy. Oftentimes way too busy so that God has to kind of be squeezed in in these lost moments. Let's turn it upside down. Let's create a wide open space and it's all up to God. It's like I, I want to be there on a walk with my God and I want to make as much time as I can for Him and I want to be at His disposition for whatever He wants to <laughs> tell me and, and even if He doesn't want to tell me anything. I don't expect any revelations or you know like a big turnaround in my life or anything but I just feel that it is time to spend some considerable time alone with God and whoever else he wants to send on my path it's 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 like really it feels I know that some some people don't like that kind of um, <laughs> romantic analogy but I truly think it's it's almost like a like a second honeymoon which can be very beneficial for a relationship and I think with a vocation it's the same and I I I may even uh, when I'm when I'm in Santiago what am I going to do there one of the things I may do is to renew my vows as a priest just like married people can do that after a while you just tell them make just renew your promises renew your fervor your love for each other that might that might be a very nice symbolic thing to do when I'm in uh, in Spain. Anyway, I wanted to share that with you. I know that for some of you this is uh, familiar territory because I've told my vocation story um, at times in the past. For for some of you, this may be new. So there you have it. And this was the abbreviated version. <laughs> I'm not kidding. This was an hour, but if I would tell you all the details and all the things that happened. Uh, I could probably fill an entire day. But I'm not going to do that. But uh, I hope this was still interesting. <laughs> thank you for listening. And thank you for sharing this hour with me. Because um, I'm almost home. And so it made the long journey home a bit more bearable. Sharing these things with you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for your support. Thanks for your prayers. Um, I pray for you. Thanks for your financial help as well. Thanks to all my patrons for their ongoing support. I can't tell you how much I appreciate that and how much that helps me in my mission. Um, and thanks to all of you who support SQPN and Tridio during our fund drive and with your monthly donations as well. You make it possible for us to reach new people every single week. And if we weren't able to do this financially thanks to you that would have not happened so thank you so much for being part of that mission and i will talk to you soon god bless <laughs>